Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In Social Work podcast from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. I'm Peter Sabota. It's good, as always, to have you along. Just as the COVID pandemic exposed the cracks and disparities in many facets of our society, including healthcare, governments, education, and other cultural aspects, long COVID is continuing the trend. Our typical responses will not likely be good enough to meet the challenges made real by the thousands of people who are experiencing long or long haul COVID. At this point, it seems like we don't know what we don't know when it comes to long COVID. The Household Pulse Survey has given us a pretty good sense of long COVID's prevalence, although it's clearly rising and also thought to be widely underreported. But this and other data and long COVID's very existence continues to be dismissed by politicians, researchers, and even some healthcare professionals. Once again, we are back to the social determinants of health territory as long COVID continues to disproportionately disrupt the lives of certain people. These disparities, the inability or the unwillingness of our government leaders to pass long COVID legislation, the lack of long COVID clinics, the need for advocacy and education related to workplace accommodations, paid sick and family leave, and expanded disability benefits are all waiting for the attention of social work change agents. Today, our guest, Jasmine Graham, LCSW, will tell us what she knows. She will describe her own experience with long COVID, educate us about what long COVID is and isn't, and discuss the implications for social work practice, social action, and interventions. Jasmine Graham, LCSW, is supervisor at Texas Oncology. Jasmine Graham, welcome to In Social Work. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today and be able to speak with you. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So how about this? There's always a person behind the topic, right? So let's let's maybe start this way, if we might, briefly, because we we want to get to the other things we had kind of planned to talk about. I'm curious, how did you find your way to the social work profession? And then finally, and more currently, how did you find yourself interested in focusing on, you know, long COVID? Can we start there? Yes, of course. All right, let us have it. My journey to social work was kind of unconventional. I was working for the Boys and Girls Club in Fort Worth one summer as a coordinator of a program. I don't even remember the program, to be honest with you, but I was in between this like stage of I'd gotten my undergraduate degree in advertising and public relations. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Right. I was unable to really find a job in that Hmm. field. And so I was working at the Boys and Girls Club just as a summer coordinator and ran into somebody that was also working there, but was getting ready to enroll um, at the local university to get her master's in social work. And so she started talking to me about it. And first question to her was, do I have to take the GRE or the GMAT? And she was like, no. And I said, great, Ah. because I'm not a great test taker. But she started talking to me about the two different tracks. And so at this particular school, there was mental health, medical social work, I believe. And I think there was a track for like child Mm -hmm. 
children and youth, maybe. Yeah. Yes. But it was broken up into micro and macro practice. And so in my mind, I wanted to go into direct practice one day and be a counselor. And mm-hmm. so I wrote this admissions essay and mm-hmm. probably got in and the rest is history. The rest is history. I'm not so surprised. I mean, adver- what was it? Advertising and and public relations. I mean, it's all about relationships. It is. And so is social work. So I actually, you know, that makes perfect sense to me. It's probably good training. Yes. Especially like for communication and being able mm-hmm. to build rapport and yeah, kind of censor yourself for a different population, right? And then documentation as well. I think it really helped me with that. And so I graduated from there and I got my first job in medical social work because uh-huh. I had a pile of debt and everybody was like, well, if you want to make a decent income, you need to go into medical social work. And so I worked at an indigent clinic in Dallas, which really laid the foundation for my career because I was the only social worker in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And it covered primary care, uh, which was the internal medicine floor, OBGYN, and then they had subclinics. So they did a lot of work with people with blood disorders. And so... I was a baby social worker in this big (laughs) clinic, not really sure of what I was doing, but I was charged with running our medicines program, which helped the patient get medications for free from the big pharma companies. And so it was myself and two volunteers that I oversaw and lots of patients. And yeah, I love your untraditional path. This is this is awesome. It was difficult, but looking back. Yeah. It made me the social worker that I am today, Mm -hmm. which kind of parallels with how I ended up on this long COVID journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously I mentioned in the introduction that, you know, you have long COVID. So, but would you want to say more? Yes. So COVID hit for me, I'll say March Mm -hmm. of 2020 is when I recall my job at that time at the Dallas VA saying I could no longer go out in the field to see veterans in the nursing homes and adult daycare facilities because of this terrible illness that they didn't know a lot about. And so I just remember in March feeling like, what is happening? What does this mean? Almost felt kind of like Y2K, like the end of the world, but we weren't really sure if it was going to be the end of the world. Yeah. But a lot of doom and gloom and stay at home. And so I did that. My husband stayed at home as well. Our daughter, I think, was around two, two and a half. And so we hunkered down. And I thought that that was going to keep us safe. This was before Mm -hmm. the COVID vaccine had been released. So we wore masks. We ordered food in. We ordered groceries pickup. So I was, you know, like I said, playing it safe. November rolls around in 2020 and I start feeling, you know, sick. But it's the time around uh, flu season. So I just chalk it up to maybe it's the flu or bad sinus infection. And I think what really gave me pause and my my husband pause was that I wasn't getting better. And I started running really high fevers. And so he took me to the emergency room in the town next to where we live. And they did confirm that I had COVID because I think first I went to the CVS drive-thru. 
And that confirmed I had COVID. And so then there was really nothing that they were doing at that time other than telling you to take Tylenol and over-the-counter meds. Right. So I did that. But I, I have other chronic illnesses like asthma and hypertension. And so uh. it was exacerbating my asthma and my blood pressure was running really high. And I was continuing mm. to have really high fever. So I went to the emergency room. They told me, yeah, you have COVID. There's nothing we can do. And they discharged me from the emergency room. Oh, brother. I came back home. I called a friend who was actually working in hospice at the time. I wasn't hospice appropriate, but. <laughs> so, I'm glad you can laugh about this now. Yes. Yeah. So I went to a hospital downtown Dallas and was seen there and immediately admitted. I was told that I had COVID pneumonia mm. and that it had settled in the bottom of my uh, lung, but it was only on one side. And so I was admitted to the COVID floor and I was told I was the only person that was not on a ventilator. So wow, I didn't need a ventilator, thankfully, but I was very, very mm-hmm. sick. I don't remember ever being that sick and I was very scared. The nurse and the doctors came in to talk with me, but even the social workers called like into the room. They did not come into the room to speak with me. And it, so it was very isolative. And I remember my husband dropping me off because they wouldn't allow him in the emergency room with me. And I didn't know if that was going to be the last time I saw him because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And so, like I said, I was admitted and I wanted to was there five days because my lab work was all wonky. I needed that special medication, uh, remdesivir, that they gave the president-elect at the time. And remember my husband saying, don't let them put you on a ventilator and don't take any of the IV medications they give you. And I'm like, well, what am I here for? Like, what do you want <laughs> me to do? Just be monitored? But yeah, it was a very scary time. And so then I was well enough to be discharged. And so I went home. I want to say they discharged me with maybe some steroids for a few days and mm-hmm. told me to follow up with my primary care doctor. And so I did that. And I want to tell you, Peter, I was never the same. You, so you never had a period where you felt, quote, like. I, I had I mean, I had covid in July, believe it or not. I waited until July of this year to get covid. And. um you know, a week later, I felt five days, six days, I felt better. And but you never felt better. No. Mm. My respiratory system healed, right? And I was able to breathe better and I wasn't running fevers. But mentally, I've not been the same. And so what happened was I ended up following up with my primary care doctor because I was having a lot of brain fog. And not remembering things like the name of my child, not being able to find my car when I parked in a parking garage. I was unemployed at the time, but just looking for a job, not feeling like I would be able to complete an interview and land a job because I couldn't find the words that I wanted to say or remember what I was talking about. And so I was very concerned. And then I've always suffered with clinical depression, but my depression worsened in a way that I really can't describe because 
it was almost like grief as well as depression because I missed the life that I had before COVID, you know, we all grieved during COVID. I don't know why I said during, because we're still dealing with it. (laughs) I just grieved the Jasmine that I was before I contracted COVID. And I didn't know how I was going to be able to continue to work once I got a job or carry out my duties as a mother and a wife. I needed a lot of support. Mm. And then I started having problems physically where I would get very faint when I would go from sitting to standing or laying down to sitting up. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go to the doctor about that. And they diagnosed me with POT syndrome, which is postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. And so actually, you know, my heart rate just would shoot up and down which would cause me to feel like I needed to faint or I would faint. And so they said that was a result of COVID as well. So I ended up doing physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational therapy post-COVID. And that was like four or five months after being discharged from the hospital. And I attended a support group through the entity that I was getting PT, OT, and ST at Mm -hmm. and other people who had worse symptoms than I did. <laughs> there are people who are having worse symptoms. Yes. Uh, Debilitating to the point where they were trying to figure out how they, you know, could apply for and be approved for disability. Yeah. Uh, oh, I want to talk with you about that later. Yeah. Wow. You know, I don't even know what to say. You know, I was going to ask you, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say this now. I was going to ask you, you know, when you got COVID, were your symptoms, did you kind of get off easy? Were they severe? Well, I think you've answered that question. I'm going to defer to you today because I really don't feel like I have expertise here whatsoever. But I have read that many people who have a mild bout of COVID, you know, some snifflies and maybe a couple days of cough, end up with long COVID quite yeah. frequently. But it sounds like you, had and never stopped. Well, and I think to your point, it's very troubling for me because like I said, I didn't need to be on a ventilator. I was still walking and talking, you know, up until Mm. being admitted to the hospital. I never stopped walking and talking, let me say that. So my symptoms to me were very mild in comparison to other people who were on ventilators or- Well, yes, yeah. No, don't recall their hospital stay at all. Mm -hmm. When I discharged, I expected that, okay, you know, I'm well enough to go home. So I'm going to be okay. And life is going to resume and, you know, the sun will shine and everything will be okay. And I will say everything has gotten okay over time, but I'm still just not Jasmine pre-COVID. And, and the, you know, the comments you made about grief and, you know, loss and depression, I mean, that makes perfect sense to anybody who's paying half attention. I'm going to ask you about disability and things like that later, but I also, you kind of really piqued my interest because, you know, you're not just a COVID patient. You, like you said, you're 
a wife and uh, a mom and uh, a daughter and a social worker and a Jasmine. Yeah. And all of that is touched by what's happening to you. Yes. Thank you for telling us that experience. And yeah, let me, uh, let's, I'm glad you're smiling. Can I shift gears just a tiny bit? Yes. So I'm really curious about this and you've touched on it just barely, but can you talk maybe just a little bit about what kinds of experiences you've had with medical and healthcare professionals as you have tried to especially navigate the long COVID thing? Because the COVID thing, I think most people can get their arms around at this point. But I think the long COVID thing is way more complicated. But I'm curious. I'm curious to what you have to say. I will say that I've had a great experience navigating healthcare with long COVID. I think that that is due to the fact that I went through um, UT Southwestern Medical Center here mm-hmm. in Dallas, which is a teaching hospital, but they have just so many different departments. And I had a wonderful primary care physician who actually left the system and moved to California recently. But he really plugged me in. So they developed this whole department for long haul COVID. And so essentially he sent a referral over to that department and they got me connected to a social worker. They got me connected to the physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapy, and it was all in one place. Whoa. So I would go to my appointments and I had everything at my disposal in one place. They were really on top of it. And what I appreciated is as a social worker, we know that people become more non-compliant when they have to navigate different systems. Absolutely. But because it was all in one place, it was easy for someone who's already struggling with brain fog or maybe physical disability, you know, walking to all these different places to try to get services just was not feasible. When I say they thought of everything that a patient may need, they thought of everything a patient may need. I think that they must have had staff dealing with long COVID Mm. that was able to also help create this system. But my experience with them was awesome. I think where I struggled after that was over was having to start over with a new doctor who I love and appreciate. You mean like your primary care person, you mean? Mm-hmm. And having to explain what I'd already gone through, what I'd been told, trying to remember everything. Yeah. It was difficult, but also having this fear of, am I believable? Does this make sense? Uh. Are they going to think that I'm pain medication seeking or... Ugh. I'm not wanting to go to work, so I I want you to sign off on FMLA or whatever. And that wasn't my experience at all. But because of who I am, a black woman, and the issues that I'm encountering, you know, physiologically and mentally, those were things that gave me pause when trying to find another provider and continue to seek help because it's still not over for me, unfortunately. Yeah. Whoa. Well, a couple reactions to all of that. First of all, we just did a podcast with with a researcher who studied 
the experiences of middle-class black women as they sought healthcare. It was extremely eye-opening and you just spoke to it. My other thing was when I asked you that question about your experiences, I did not expect you, quite frankly, to give me the answer that you did. So I'm thrilled that you somehow walked into that system because that sounds to me like one of the solutions, you know, when we get to talking about that. I'm thrilled, but I admit that I'm surprised. And before I ask you another question, I wanted to ask you just one more before we move in there. Let's just say that that system was there and it was wraparound. And that sounds like what we're shooting for. And, And you found it. However, I mean, I don't know you that well, but I would also argue that you are not your typical, quote, patient. I mean, you have a background in healthcare. You're a social worker. You know, you are, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know. You're an empowered patient yes. and probably not a patient who will automatically defer. You know, you're going to ask questions. Is that fair? Do you think that shaped your experience at all? Yes. Because that has implications for people who don't have what you have. Yes, exactly. So if it were my husband, let's say, going through this and I was not a social worker and I had no healthcare background, it would have been very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I think that it's hard to prove that things that are going on with people outside of COVID are COVID related, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you have that whole piece and chasing that rabbit down the hole of, you know, what is this? Is it related to COVID, this, that, and the other? But outside of that, also, we don't live close to where this uh, medical center is at all. Uh And that's another barrier to care Mm -hmm. that I recognize is just being able to access it, whether that's physically or financially. And so- Yeah, and you were able to, right? I mean, that's, yeah. Yes, But as you said, also being able to ask questions, what resources do you have? Am I eligible for these resources? Is it covered by my insurance? So, yes, you're absolutely right. I know how to navigate the system and I didn't need any assistance navigating the system. However, if it had been someone else without prior knowledge, it may have been very difficult for them. And for many folks. You know, the reality that you've got this place that gets it right, that gets the whole package might not be accessible because of you know simply finances. And, and, you know, I mean, that's that's a reality. OK, so you have had wonderful experiences, it sounds like, yes. um, with with healthcare professionals. And OK, this is the last one directly about you. And then I promise us, I feel like I'm kind of interrogating you here, but no, you're fine. Can I ask like, you know, we left the story, I think in November of 2020. Yeah. How are you feeling lately? Currently? Um, I've had a lot of issues post COVID and I can't say that they are COVID related. Okay. But after finishing like physical therapy and all of that, I 
I drank the Kool-Aid and I got on the Ozempic hike to lose weight. And I did lose weight and I've kept some of it off, but I've had problems with my weight fluctuating um, up and down since COVID. Mm -hmm. I feel like I never really got over the brain fog, but I've learned to deal with it and have to accept it. And so I tell people, you know, ahead of time, I struggle sometimes with finding my words or it takes me a little bit longer to process. Also on that same vein, I think my depression has has worsened. Worsened. Since COVID, because I'm an, I'm a different person. And during this time, it heightened my anxiety to the point where there was a lot of dissension in my household about vaccinations and mm-hmm. whether or not everyone should be vaccinated in our household. Mm-hmm. And then I was a crazy person almost, you know, <laughs> like disrobe before you step through the front door, you know, um, mm-hmm. wipe everything down. I yeah. mean, if I could have worn a hazmat suit to go grocery shopping, I would have at one point. Mm-hmm. Because I was just on high alert about. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound crazy to anybody who went through what you went through and, you know, continue to. Yeah. Yeah. But but again, you are being incredibly frank. And thank you. You're welcome. Because I don't think this is what people get. I don't think they. Yeah. Now let's talk about Jasmine, the the social work professional. So obviously this must be tricky because you have your own experience. What have you been learning, for example, from what long COVID has been doing to the people you know and and, and clients? I'm sure there are similarities, but I, I can imagine, you know, there are nuances and in individual experiences as well. Yes. I think that for me as a social worker, what has been <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. That's okay. For me as a social worker, what has been eye-opening is the amount of patients that think that whatever they're dealing with medically is just an extension of something that they already have. Like they don't find the correlation between COVID and diabetes or COVID and their cancer diagnosis. They're not seeing it as it having the ability to exacerbate what you already have. And because it's not always um, a new diagnosis or illness, it's hard for people to really understand that COVID is masking itself in other ways, you know, and it could be causing um, your chronic illness to be exacerbated or cause a whole new illness that you never dealt with. Mm-hmm. So because they don't see it that way, they don't ask questions to their providers or make the connections. I think so. Is it fair to say that some providers aren't making those connections? Yes. Mm-hmm. I see people. I was even doing this for a while, you know, circulating through urgent cares or emergency rooms because, you know, they think that I had a patient whose heart was out of control. I can't remember exactly what the diagnosis was. Sorry, that's the brain fog setting in. Yeah. 
she was in and out of the hospital and she was a high utilizer. So then I had to call her as a social worker to see what we could do to keep her from utilizing the emergency room so much. Mm. And then one time I called her and she was so short of breath and unable to really uh, communicate with me. I had to call 911 to her home. And so she ended up needing um, a heart procedure. And I believe that they finally realized that her COVID diagnosis prior had exacerbated her heart condition. And they'd never put the two together. I mean, she just kept going to the emergency room. And so I'm not clinical, so I can't tell people, hey, this could be related to COVID. But, you know, I did ask probing questions and asked her to communicate those answers to her provider to help, you know, come to some sort of conclusion or just at least look into it because it just wasn't making sense why she wasn't getting better. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. You know, it. It feels like we're kind of in, to me at least, in in familiar territory. It's fair to say that we don't know what we don't know when it comes to long COVID. That's really the state of affairs, right? Um, We need Operation Warp whatever for long COVID, like we had with COVID is what seems to me. But it just feels to me like we're in familiar territory in that we don't have, like long COVID doesn't have a checklist of or a clear diagnostic test or criteria, right? We can't do a blood test per se. And of course, there's also this piece of lots of overlapping pre and comorbidity, right? That you said is not always sorted out or even even it doesn't occur to people that they might need to sort this out. So I'm thinking of, of things like, for example, that we have gone down the road with. Chronic fatigue syndrome, Epstein-Barr virus, Lyme disease even. And you alluded to this earlier that people, they start talk, you start telling them what's happening and they make a bunch of assumptions, most of which are not compliments or are suspicious. So I don't know how that came out, but this feels familiar to me. And I'm just wondering if you agree and how does that complicate almost everything for people seeking care for long COVID. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. And it, it it does complicate because it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. And yeah. you find yourself just trying to navigate what you already are dealing with medically, but then trying to understand when COVID, when you had it, if it, was the same time, like, I can't even find my words right now, but you hit the nail on the head for me in that, for instance, for myself, I have hypertension. You know, my blood pressure has been up and down since I was 27. I turned 39 last week. So that's 12 years of me being told by doctors I need to be medicated. I'm going to have, you know, fluctuations and what those side effects are. So imagine when I'm starting to feel faint and my pulse is up and down. I'm like, oh, well, this might just be an extension of my hypertension. I don't know. Dismissive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then it gets to the point that I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the doctor because I fainted at the store, you know, but if it hadn't gone that bad, I would have just kept dealing with it Mm -hmm. because 
that's what I'm used to doing. And that is what many people are doing. We are just dismissing it as, oh, okay, well, this is just, you know, the same thing I've been dealing with. It's just worsened right now for whatever reason. But they're not looking at the big picture. They're not able to connect the dots. And that's what's so scary about long COVID, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, we have this large trove of data that doesn't suggest that documents that women are treated when they seek care, they're treated as hysterical. Yes. Again, with your social work hat on, what would you say is and isn't available? in the current environment for people who have long COVID? Like what are, what systems do you feel, obviously you spoke earlier about a a gem of a, of a system, but I know that's not the case everywhere. It's certainly not. I don't think, I can't think of anything comparable here in Western New York. So what are the things that are there and are not there that would be helpful for people with long COVID and especially in systems that like you just got finished saying are not terribly sensitive to the needs. Yes, I think that what is available are a lot of siloed services, as I like to say. I was afraid um, you were going to say that. Uh-huh. You know, well, you can go here and you can get this service here, but there's no comprehensive anything anywhere. You know, luckily for me, there was a system in place where I could get all the services that I you know, needed during my recovery. But what I think is missing across the board are community agencies. And that's where the people are in the communities Mm -hmm. that help them navigate what to do next, Um, help them connect the dots. You know, I would love for there to be an organization that does patient navigation where people you know, are able to have a one-stop shop where they're connected with a social worker that tells them, well, what's available here where you live are these things. And if you need something outside of that, you have to go these places. But before that, a thorough assessment is missing. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where we're missing the ball. Because the people with long COVID aren't even being assessed for long COVID. We're not finding out that we have it until major events have occurred that may have been able to be um, avoided altogether. I think that even in 2023, providers and hospital systems are still discharging patients with, okay, you've been treated, you know, or doctor's offices. Well, you're no longer testing positive for COVID. You're good. Yes, and you, you're, you're finished. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, this you're, is, significant. <laughs> you're kind of uh, blowing my mind here a little bit because I know I, I know personally a number of people who have long COVID. And pretty much they it, it's almost like they got together and talked because they they talk about meeting with healthcare professionals and this is why i asked you earlier that that question about yours but their experiences with healthcare providers is they get to a certain point and for example physicians kind of throw up their hands and say i i don't have anything to offer you about this and you know i can help you manage your symptoms but i can't give you i mean let's face it we don't have evidence based practice for long COVID at this point. 
So yeah, that's, it's ringing true. So here's something that I read. I read a statement that I think it was something like there are 10 times more people who have long COVID than who have died from COVID. So if that's true, and that's probably an underestimate because of all the reasons you just got finished talking about, that seems to me like a massive problem now and going into the future. And it seems like our response has been pretty weak. Yes. To be gracious. I would think, for example, that we're going to have to change. Society is going to have to change. Just like we changed, for example, over time (laughs) with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. I mean, we finally kind of got it eventually. Sort of. I'm thinking about moving forward with a massive amount of the population involved with long COVID without a viable understanding or treatment. What kind of environment? I mean, think about this. Think about the impact on the economy and on families and on children and like you and your, you know, (laughs) your spouse, everybody. What kind of like workplace protections and accommodations, and now let's talk about disability benefits, are going to be needed. Because what we have in place now, I don't think is going to cook the rice for most people. No, we're going to have to have a major overhaul. <laughs> Jeez. Mm-hmm. Even in 2023. So I had my, my child in 2018. And at that time, I believe where I worked, we only got six weeks of leave. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, after I quit, they get three months of leave. But we're going to need something like that in effect for people because you can't just get over COVID or test negative Friday and return back to work on Monday. It's not working like that anymore for people. Yeah. Um, So there there's have to be some type of protections. Yeah. and, And my understanding and again, my understanding is limited. We are not doing so great. What is, is it the, I believe it was called the COVID-19 Long Haulers Act or something similar to that. It was legislation in Congress. I don't think it's gone anywhere. I think it fell flat. It fell flat. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's not a good sign. No. Also, again, I'm going to defer to you, if you know, is if you're going to get SSDI, that's an involved process. Yes. And is there something like you have to be um, kind of really kind of debilitated for almost like a a year? There there is a certain time frame, I believe. And that I mean. For people with long COVID, we don't have that kind of time to wait for decision to get a few hundred bucks or a few thousand dollars. I mean, people are losing homes left and right over medical uh, debt without long COVID. So I can't imagine getting COVID, which you don't contract through your own fault, right. <laughs> you know, 
So it's unexpected. It's not something that you're like, oh, on Tuesday at 2 p.m., I'm going to have COVID and I'm going to be out till Friday. And so you get that and then you expect to recover in the time frame that your after visit summary from the doctor says. Um, you know, you've done everything, taken the over the counter medications or prescription medications and you think it's done. Well, a lot of people try to resume normal activities of daily living shortly after that. It takes a while for you to notice you're not the same or you're having issues. They don't pop up for everybody immediately. And so what happens is you go back to work and you're working and your supervisors and managers are seeing you do your work and they're expecting you know, whatever tasks that you're assigned to be completed in a timely manner with quality. And you might be able to do that for a little bit. But what happens month three when these symptoms of long COVID start to kick in and yeah. you've been performing all this time. So then it becomes a performance issue at work instead of a medical issue. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was going to ask you, but I think this is the point to just talk about it and say it that, you know, kind of like, you know, what's the role of social work as a profession and as individual practice? You know, why should why should social workers, for example, especially maybe folks who haven't been directly affected by long COVID, why should they feel they need to be aware and why should it matter to them? But I think you're providing some really good answers about why that is. I mean, there are workplace rights and economic justice rights that I we don't seem to be moving toward in any kind of practical way. I mean, I was joking when we, you know, we had this warp speed project to develop a vaccine. This is the next crisis. Yes. We're in it in many ways. And it's important for social workers to, you know, stay abreast of this and begin to not only research, but advocate for patients. Advocacy, that's what I was thinking. I mean. I didn't think that this would happen to me. And so that's the other reason why I think it's important for all social workers to get on board is because you don't know. And it may not be you. It could be a loved one. It could be a colleague that you're having to cover for that you asking, well, when are they coming back to work? Mm hmm. It may not directly impact you now, but eventually we all will be impacted by long COVID in some way. Exactly. And social workers, you know, we're going to encounter, regardless of setting, you know, our clients, their families, our coworkers, and and in maybe entire organizations impacted by long COVID. We don't even seem yet to have the insight to ask the right questions that would truly involve completing a wonderful biopsychosocial and spiritual assessment, which we preach right in our in our profession, person and environment. So there seems like there's tremendous opportunities, regardless of how directly you're affected or not. Yes. By this. And, you know, I've also I, I just want to pick your brain about this. I mean, anybody who tries to go to a restaurant nowadays or even travel, like if you want to fly somewhere, there are all these shortages of workers. And a lot has been made of a, um, you know, the great resignation and that people got fed up. I don't deny that. 
I've certainly heard anecdotally about some of that. But I just wonder how much of this is due to the long lasting impact of COVID and long COVID. I would bet that it's equal, if not, if not more so. So how do we engage those people in productive lives where they benefit and contribute to our economy? I think we need to make major change. I agree. And I think that we're going to have to work with, you know, workforce development. I know they have vocational rehab counselors because a lot of people are going to have to realign or readjust the industry they, you know, were working in. They're they're not able to do that line of work anymore or they need accommodations to continue in that that path that they were in. And so I think that we as social workers are going to be the ones that are going to be doing the program development for the changes that need to occur. Yeah. The the opportunity for playing the educator and advocacy role just seem like a responsibility, not even a choice in this day and age. So we are getting close to the end of our time here. Boy, this is this is zoomed by here. This is fascinating. So let me just raise this one and see what happens. As we know, and as we learn every time it happens over and over, people in the broader society who are already disenfranchised always suffer the most when broad systemic issues like COVID affect our society. So we're talking about COVID. Now we're talking about long COVID. If I may, do you believe that there are implications for racial and economic justice responses, just for starters, related to long COVID? Yes, I do. And I think that we've spoken about a couple of them, but on the broader spectrum, I think that people in the BIPOC communities, people that belong to lower socioeconomic classes are going to suffer greatly because they're already overlooked. They already are distrustful of um, medical, you know, services and providers. And a lot of times they seek help when it's too late. And so, and maybe it's not, they seek help when it's too late, it's offered too late. Um, And so as a result of that, I think that Social workers, again, are going to have to rise up and advocate for these populations to get assessed. To help them change their perspective that perhaps this isn't an extension of what I've already been diagnosed with. This could be long COVID because there's also a major educational piece that's missing within this population about long COVID. They don't even some of them don't even know that exists. They don't they've never heard of it. You know, and then there's been a lot of misinformation related to COVID. So that is. <laughs> oh, that's another podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly, Peter. That just complicates it even more. And so I think that this is another opportunity for not only social workers, but people that are hyped up about social justice and um, helping disenfranchise, which I really don't like that word, but. Yeah. 
brain fog. Sorry, I couldn't come up yeah, with that. I used it. So. Yeah. Well, I think you've gone a long way to helping social workers know about long COVID and in, in the most personal and even in the most professional expertise way. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's been really kind of eye-opening and, you know, your story is, you know, your story. It's a gift. Thank you. On behalf of everybody who listens to this. And then that coupled with the expertise that you have um, as a social worker and that whole uh, perspective has been interesting, alarming, and and helpful. So, Jasmine, thank you for taking the time and thank you for talking with us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. And I just appreciate being given this gift and opportunity to speak and hopefully enlighten somebody that is wondering what is going on with me or my loved one. So thank you. Yeah, I think we're the better for it. Thanks again to Jasmine Graham. The In Social Work crew is our chair and all things tech guru, Steve Sturman, Nick DeSmet, our graduate production assistant, editor extraordinaire, and guest coordinator. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. And I'm Peter Sabota. We'll talk again soon, everybody.